I think it's it's normal for us to sometimes be in groups and not like other people. I mean, that's just we're human, so we're not. Sometimes we're going to be part of a group or part of an organization, and realize that oh, I just don't really like that person. I don't really want to like deal with that person. And so, as a Christian, as a person who's part of that, that community, it's I, my conscience says, "Hey, you've got to accept that." And, and and I accept them. I like them, but I realize I don't necessarily want to be in their company. Right. And this is, I feel like we have to. We sometimes grapple with. And sometimes, you know, just as you know, your group coming out to New York and working in the garden and so forth, it allowed them to break certain bonds and become like you know, become better and closer and so forth. But sometimes you, you actually get to see the true essence of a person. You're like, oh, I, I don't really want anything to do with you. This is Ordinary Voices, inviting ordinary people in everyday conversations about life and faith. I'm your host, Eric Elkin. I created this podcast to help me, a pastor, better understand people and the way they view the world. Now I've invited you into the conversation, so together we might listen. Listen to hear the presence of God breathing through the thoughts of ordinary voices. Guests on this show are not authorities. They're simply people willing to share with us the authenticity of their own thoughts. I try to provide the guests freedom to talk and let them determine the direction of the conversation then reflect upon the things I heard them say. Each show, I ask listeners to listen like a good camp counselor. Good camp counselors allow children to express themselves without judgment. They listen for what the camper is trying to say. People who listen tend to understand each other better. And we live in a world desperate for ears. So let's begin today's show. Michael's Search for Community. My guest today is Michael Peer, a lawyer living in Brooklyn, New York, who, despite a lack of experience, was tasked with the responsibility of building a garden. We met this summer when I brought a youth group from Minnesota to the church Michael attends in Brooklyn, St. Lydia's Dinner Church. We helped him work on a garden being built in St. Lydia's backyard. St. Lydia's is described as a progressive, LGBTQ-affirming congregation in the Gowanus neighborhood of Brooklyn, working together to dispel isolation, reconnect neighbors, and subvert the status quo. The dinner aspect we'll talk about later. The day we worked on the garden, temperatures reached 100 degrees and the humidity was about 80%. It was one of the reasons Michael agreed to be interviewed. This is my way of saying thank you to you for the work that you did, because I was just so impressed with it, that you guys came to New York on a hot summer day, and you guys could have been out enjoying yourselves, but you took them to this lot in Brooklyn, (laughs) and had them dig in this, like, toxic soil. You know, when he puts it that way, it sounds sort of bad, but it was a really good experience. When Peggy and I moved to Iowa, we bought a house two blocks from the elementary school our children would attend. We used to stand at the front door and watch them walk to school in the morning. The parents in the neighborhood scolded us for being reckless. They thought we should walk our children to school to assure their safety. I thought about this as I listened to Michael describe his childhood. His cheerful voice hides the level of risk involved in his parents' decisions. I, I was born in St. Lucia, Castries, St. Lucia, and uh, 
My father left when I was about 11 months. Um, and my mom left shortly thereafter when I was about four years, just, just, just about four years of age. And so it was typical in the Caribbean that because of lack of economic opportunity, most people, families who could, would go to the U.S. and find jobs and you know provide for their children and so forth. So the plan was for me and my sister to immigrate to New York and to be with my, my father and my mom. And so it took a very, very long time because my, my parents were illegal immigrants at the time and they were trying to get jobs and they were trying to do all that they could to survive and be able to provide for a family. So when they were in a position that they felt they were, were uh, sort of stable and could provide, they then called for my sister and my sister came up and a year later I came up. I moved to New York when I was 10 and I grew up in, uh, grew up in Spanish Harlem, which was like a major culture shock for me <laughs> at that time. And I was just having a conversation with another friend last night who grew up in New Hampshire. Her family's actually from Canada, moved to New York about in 2003. And she's talking about the changes that she sees in, in, in Brooklyn. And I was like, you don't understand what, what Brooklyn was like in the 80s or what New York was like. So the changes you're seeing, they're not that, they're not that stark. They're not that big. I mean, right. uh, when I came to New York in the 80s, I was terrified of everything. I, I, was, I, was, I was afraid to go in the subway. I remember how, how terrible and scary the subways were with the graffiti everywhere. And then... I went to, I am, so I, I, my parents lived in Spanish Harlem. I went to a Catholic school in Harlem and I had to take a bus to, to Harlem. And I would be, I was, I was afraid a lot. I was afraid constantly. And this is a, this is around the crack epidemic. So I would, you know, on my way home, I would see the vials of cracks. I'd walk down streets that were a little scary. Um, I would, in Harlem, who Harlem was completely not like it is now. Right. They were boarded up buildings, the abandoned buildings, the, the people selling drugs on the corner. It was a very, very scary place. The New York City you visit today is radically different from the New York City of the 1980s. The level of violence, drug use, and poverty in the 80s cannot be overstated. Hundreds of crack vials littered the sidewalk each morning. You would sweep them away, and a brand new bunch waited for you the next morning. Today, Times Square is an amazingly fun, family-friendly environment. But in the 80s, they used to call 42nd Street from Port Authority Bus Terminal to Times Square, Minnesota Strip. It was named this because of the overwhelming number of teenage runaways arriving at Port Authority, most of them from the Midwest. Almost immediately, they would start prostituting themselves in Times Square for money. It all took place right in front of your eyes. I remember the level of fear I had as an adult traveling through New York City. I cannot begin to conceive of what it must have been like for a 10-year-old boy, especially a 10-year-old boy who rode a city bus by himself to Harlem Michael said in our interview he doesn't look back on that time as either good or bad, just an experience in life. However, it's not hard to hear how the isolation of his youth influences the desire for community as an adult. There's not a lot of supervision at that time then for you, right? Because they're both working? Yeah, and so there wasn't a lot of supervision, but there were the rules, you know, so there were the rules. 
And so are you familiar with the term, the latchkey kid? Yeah, yeah. So I was, uh, I was a latchkey kid. You know, I would go to school, come home, close the door, couldn't go back outside. So I, I just stayed, you know, and that's what I, I did. I, I would just like stay out, stay inside. I, I wasn't able to run around and play. And there were so many things that I wanted to do. And I would hear the kids in the neighborhood, like, you know, running around playing because they were all familiar with New York and this is a community they grew up in. And my parents were a little bit concerned for my sister and myself who weren't really familiar and probably thought that it was not the most inviting place so that you guys just stay inside and do not go outside. And, and so I grew up like that, always being inside. When I, came from the, when I came from the Caribbean, the Caribbean is just like a very warm place. Everybody knows each other. Everybody says hello to each other. You walk out, you feel, you feel fine. You don't have this sense of fear that something is going to happen to you. You don't think that you're going to be assaulted. You don't think that you're going to be robbed. You're just like free. You're, you're in your own world. You're like, you're going to the beach. Right. And nobody like really care much. Everyone you meet on the street, you say hi. You're like, regardless of whether you know them, you'll say hi. Right. And one of my early experiences in New York and Spanish Harlem was because I didn't know a lot of people in the neighborhood, there were the few people who I would see every so often. And I knew them because I would see them on the street or they lived in my building. And I would say, hi, you know, just like that. Hi, you know, and so forth. And that was, that was taken as odd. It was like, you don't do that. And so one of the guys who I'd say, there's this older Dominican uh, uh, person who lived in my, my building. He was an older man. Well, he was like, I, was, I think I was around 10 or 11 at the time. And he was probably around 16, 17. And because I had seen him like quite a few times, and I didn't really know him. But I'd say, hi, you know, like I'd see him walking with his friends and like say and do that. And that was his friends. I remember once saying, who's that guy? Well, he's so odd. Like, it's so weird. And just the idea of saying hello and smiling at someone in Spanish Harlem was considered odd. You know, it became a problem for me because they then perceived me as being weird and strange. And I remember I had like, you know, I was assaulted. I was beaten up by them because they thought it was strange and weird you know those smiling and waving like who are you like where the hell are you from like we don't do that here we're all tough this is spanish harlem and so one of the things that one of the takeaways from that experience is i find myself especially and in new york i it was something that i learned very quickly was never to look at people and never smile at people in new york in the 80s everyone had this sense of fear and fear does lots of things to people. So the group that I tell you about in Spanish Harlem, who was like basically like, you know, beat the crap out of me and assaulted me and so forth that and would like harass me every time they saw me, they were also very fearful individuals. And because they had all this fear, they formed groups and they formed their little gangs and so forth. And that's how it happens. You know, the, the person you see on the train who does not look at you or seems cold to you, is another person who's probably dealing with fear. And they're thinking to themselves, oh, I can't look at this person because that's going to invite some sort of like unwelcome attention. And New Yorkers do that a lot of times. They don't want to engage because they're fearful of what that engaging will actually do. So their guard is always up. And as a result, they seem sort of cold and shut off because they're all dealing with that. And it's unfortunate. But I think, I think that's, that's, you know, and people may look at that on the outside and say, oh, they're cold, you know, they're, they're unfriendly. But they're all guarded because they all are dealing with different kinds of stress related to fear. 
The tough New York exterior is a coping mechanism designed for protection and self-preservation. However, underneath that surface, you'll meet some of the warmest, friendliest people on the planet, a reality Michael reflects and is consistently apparent throughout our whole conversation. The impact of fear, though, transcends New York. Fear not only does lots of things to people, it ultimately tries to destroy community. Michael learns this in a community where fear is a legitimate response to the conditions of the neighborhood. But I think of the places where fear is not a legitimate response yet we allow it to destroy our lives. Michael escapes New York and discovers an amazing blessing. Soil. Dirt. It's connected to fear in a way, but he finds a gift in something most Midwesterners take for granted. Fear blinds us from seeing the blessings in our midst. I had a couple of experiences when I was in high school and I went out to uh, the Midwest and I just sort of enjoyed being in a place that was calmer, slightly different from New York. And I wanted to be in, in, in that environment. I chose to be in that environment. And I decided to make the decision to go to the University of Wisconsin. It was different. I wanted to see, uh, I, I guess I'm always curious. I always wanted to, see, I wanted to see other parts of the country. And at the same time, you know, the idea of like the soil and the dirt and nature and everything, uh, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to experience that. I also had a couple of teachers who... Uh, went who was it was in New York were uh, they graduated from the University of Wisconsin and had spoken highly of it and I was just curious that I wanted to and I had the opportunity you know you, you said something there that's really interesting because uh, the the concept of dirt yeah when you're in the city yeah. as opposed to Madison Wisconsin they're completely different aren't they yeah I I got off the plane in Madison and I was in a car being driven to uh, downtown Madison and uh, the windows were open and it rained and I could smell the soil and it was it was just so it, it was so strong and there was something about it and I felt it and I felt this connection because I could smell the soil and I, I tell this to people sometimes and they don't know they, they can't really relate to it like what do you mean you could smell the soil and this is people from New York and they don't really know and just recently I was walking with somebody else who said oh the soil smells a little strange. This is in New York, and I, but I, I can pick up on it. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I grew up in an island where there was just dirt around me all the time, and I felt like I would always smell the dirt, and I could always smell the dirt after the rain. I think about that because, you know, dirt in the city, um, something's probably urinated in that, defecated in that. There's garbage probably in that. And it's and it's maybe a section of soil that you look at it. It might be two feet by two feet, where it's an opening for a tree to grow, you right. know. And then, well, and then even if you think about the backyard at St. Lydia's, yeah. that soil's toxic. You're not going to be sitting there, you know. <laughs> was it high levels of lead in there? Is that what it was, or? They say, you know, um, I'd like to think that probably a lot of the lead has gone away, dissipated, you know, into the environment. At Camp Shalom, we used to take campers to the Makokita Caves. Each camper tried to see how muddy they could get. People in New York City don't share this affinity for dirt. They don't necessarily see, and with good reason, the cleansing properties of dirt. But they are learning. Well, at least... Michael sees value in it. 
typically in New York, I don't normally smell dirt uh, in New York. I don't. It's you get the stench of like other things on the sidewalk, and trust me, uh, whether it's urine or whatever on the sidewalk, it's, if it were on dirt, it probably would be a lot more pleasant because <laughs> yeah. it would see. But it dries on the concrete, and it's horrible, especially in the summer. But I, I tend not to really smell uh, soil in New York. Right. I, I, yeah. And I was just telling you about that recent experience where a friend said oh, the, the soil smelled really bad and rancid to, to her. Uh, this was in the Brooklyn Bridge Park. And New York is doing something right now with all the gentrification. We're seeing more and more green space. So you could see the improvements in Prospect Park. You could see the, uh, the new Brooklyn Bridge Park. And there's a lot more soil. There's a lot more trees. And maybe that's why everything in New York right now, crime is down. Because we <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's a connection. <laughs> it could be. But absolutely, it's, it's so important to the psyche to, to have those spaces. You know, yeah. um, I know from, for me personally, I, I feel so much better when I go out to Prospect Park or Central Park. And I just sit there for a, a while and just relax and just see everyone and just be connected. And it's just a little park. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. What few people realize outside of New York City, the need for green space has always existed in the planning of New York City. Long before anyone envisioned a city of population, Central Park was set aside as sacred ground. They are also doing incredible things to improve and expand green space today. But now I turn the conversation to Faith by asking Michael about his roots in the church. So in St. Lucia, I, there was, I, I went to an Anglican church, it was, and it was just the church that I, I went to because it was probably close to my house. It wasn't like, you know. Yeah. And I, I went there, my grandmother would, would go there, so I went. And I didn't feel a real sense of connection. I actually didn't like going to church. I, was, I felt like I was forced to go to church. Yeah, so I didn't feel this connection. And when I came to New York, my, my parents wanted me to continue going to church. So they wouldn't go themselves, but they would send my sister and myself, and we would hate it, and we would sit there you're on. And like, God, this is terrible. Just get us out of here. <laughs> I never really had this strong sense of connection with church growing up. Yeah. Uh-huh. The place my parents would send me for punishment. How did you get connected to St. Lydia's? Because you're like a kid that went to church as a punishment, now you end up at St. Lydia's putting a garden in. There's like a... <laughs> How do we go from me to be on that one? Or, uh, uh, it's funny. Um, so I had been thinking a lot about the idea of going to a church. And the thought would you know, come across every so often. And I was like, oh, you know, I should go to a church. I'd go to, I, need, I need to go to church. I want to go to church. And the reason why I would think that is I felt like I needed a sense of community. And I wanted to be connected with people who were like, like-minded and so forth. But as much as I said that, oh, I need to go to church, I'd get up on a Sunday and I was like, oh, forget it. Yeah, I said I was going to go, but I'm not going to go. I have other things to do, so I'd go elsewhere. Right. About maybe four or five years ago, I was swimming uh, at the, a local Y in my area. And I used to do a lot of like running and triathlons and that sort of stuff. And it, swimming is one of the things that I just, I love to jump into a pool and swim. And while I was swimming... I was in a lane I was sharing with another woman 
who I don't really know, but I'd seen her several times, and we, we just we were always in sync. Yeah, so I, I like sharing a lane with her. She stays on her side, I stay on my side. We go back and forth. We're about the same speed and, and so forth. And so while we're swimming, this woman jumps into the pool and <laughs> another woman comes in. And that woman was Emily, our past, uh, our former pastor at St. Lydia's. And I, I, the other woman who I was normally swimming with, I could see she was annoyed by that. Like, what the hell is happening? Our, 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 our balance is being that by this person who just jumped into the pool now we're, we're going to have to accommodate her. Now we're going to have to circle swim. And we didn't know how fast or how good of a swimmer she, she, she was. It was kind of interesting because Emily was very slow and she was not a swimmer. And she was not prepared for the pool. So this other woman who I, I used to see quite often was like annoyed. And she was like, oh, what, what, what do we do? Like, and I said, you know, it's, it's okay. You stay on your side, and and we'll just we'll just let her. We'll just swim around her and so forth. But every time I came to the end of the pool, Emily was there. Like she would swim one length, and then she would like stop for air, and she just want to talk. And she was like standing there in a bikini, like where it's everybody who's like uh, swimming. It was, they were all wearing like one pieces, and she's there in a bikini. And she's like, "Oh, I'm a pastor at this church in Brooklyn." And I was like, "Oh, you're a pastor?" <laughs> and then she tells me. While we were swimming, she tells me between uh, between you know lengths, she tells me about Saint Lydia's, and I was like, "Oh, that's interesting, uh, a dinner church. Oh, it's at uh, it's at seven o'clock on a Sunday. Oh, that's really great. I could definitely do that, you know, because I don't have to get up at like you know nine, ten o'clock to go to some somewhere." I went there and I showed up, and she was really surprised to see me, and she was like, "Oh my God, the guy from the pool!" And I- <laughs> <laughs> And immediately, I had a name tag, and everyone started to be like, "Hey, Michael!" And they, "Michael, Michael, Michael!" And everyone would like we would talk to each other and call each other by our first name because we were all wearing our name tag, and that felt good. And it was like community, community. Right. And immediately, um, I made connections, I made friends, and there were people who I felt very close to, and I immediately felt sort of connected to the place because it was a nice place to go on a Sunday afternoon. Um, Sunday evening and like just chat with people and share your experiences and it was just it was it was good I just felt great being there Michael finds a community because of an invitation none of his friends maybe not even Michael understood how much he was longing for a different kind of community Pastor Emily's surprise when he showed up at St. Lydia's reveals she didn't know his longing either People, even pastors, are reluctant to invite people in. Maybe we listen too much to the demise of Christianity and allow the fear of it to cloud our vision. People are hungry for a spiritual community. People only need an invitation to explore. Michael's life prepared him for the invite. He knows the richness of community and the absence of it. But now I gotta ask, what's a dinner church? What is a dinner church? Dinner church is basically you have the sermon, but at the sermon, everyone, we share the meal. Just like we share the sermon, we share our experiences, we share a meal. So everyone sits at a table after the sermon. Uh, bread is broken, and we share in this meal. Um, and then people talk about the experiences. So it's, it's church 
sim- simply, uh, and I think the best way to, well, uh, the way Emily describes it is during the time of like Jesus and his apostles, uh, a lot of Jesus's preaching was done when he'd break bread with his disciples, they'd sit at a table and they would talk. Mm-hmm. And so this is sort of like uh, a similar model. What do you feel like that, what that spiritual need was? When you were in that pool before Emily in the bikini showed up with her, uh, <laughs> with her slow pace, because <laughs> there's like a metaphor, isn't there? In that, like, uh, like this pastor comes in with a slow pace and uh, interrupts your cycle. I mean, that's <laughs> with something completely unexpected, like a bikini. I don't know. No. And I think I was. This is a time in New York where I'm no longer in school. I work. And it's where, where is my community? Where is my community? And it's, it's trying to find that. So I have my friends who I see every so often. We go out to bars. We go out, you know, we have drinks here and there. We, we, I have my running friends. But sometimes I just want that sense of community. People who I could be around. People who I could talk to. People I could relate to. And personally, when I think about it, like right now as, as we're talking, um, and this goes back to me talking about Spanish Harlem and saying how I felt like I was completely not connected to it because Hera was a person from St. Lucia being thrust into Spanish Harlem um, and then going to school in Harlem. So throughout my life, I've always been searching for community. Right. And even when I left New York and went to uh, you know Madison, because you know in Madison, I, I stuck out like a sore thumb in, in, in Madison. And it's like, just like I stuck out like a sore thumb in Spanish Harlem. And so there's always been this search to have community. I think I was at a point where I, I was like, I need, I, need, I need to be around people that I feel connected to. And when I saw Emily and she told me about it, I was intrigued and I went and immediately I felt sort of connected to the place. How do we move church from a punishment like Michael saw it or a routine into something spiritually renewing? Ordinary Voices is a resource for people searching for spiritual meaning in daily life. It's for people looking for hope. I want to help you bridge the spiritual gap between Sundays or provide something meaningful if it's missing altogether. In the podcast, we are invited into the lives of ordinary people like Michael with the thought we might find some of our own struggles in these stories, then in reflection upon them, discover hope. If you like what you hear, recommend it to a friend. They may be searching as well and are only looking for an invite. Go to the website OrdinaryVoices.org. That's OrdinaryVoices.org to find other shows or to sign up for the daily devotions. podcast is a listener-supported show, so if you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the Donate button on the website OrdinaryVoices.org. Thank you again for listening. Now let's return to Michael's search for community. Is there a difference or a similarity between when you have this community of friends, whether it be St. Lydia's or other kind of communities that you found yourself in? Um, there are similarities. Uh, there, there, there are a lot of similarities. However, I think in New York, everyone is busy. And so I have my friends and I don't see them as often as I'd like to. I, I, they're friends who I see maybe once every six months, uh, once every year. They're, they're friends who I see more frequently. But everyone, like in New York, everyone's, everyone's busy. Everyone's doing. And so, like, 
we may connect on like in social media, we may uh, connect on like text, uh, but you we're not we don't always gather, and so we're not always in the same place at the same time. Uh, Saint Lydia provided that community, and I knew that if I want to see them on a Sunday, I could see them. If I want to see them on a Monday, I could see them, and then. Outside of St. Lydia's, I realized that I was also connecting with uh, friends who I met at St. Lydia's outside of St. Lydia's. So that felt really good. And it felt like a community. There's something different about the pace of life in that St. Lydia's community. It, it just seems like there's something calmer there. Absolutely. When, when I meet with friends, um, there's this need. It's like so we're socializing and... I always feel like, oh, it involves like going to a bar, having drinks, and with St. Lydia's, it's the same sort of connection, more or less, but without the extra, oh, we need to go to this bar, oh, we need to do this, or we need to, it's just simple, you're just there, and the other aspect is, is the reflection on, on other things, whether it's scripture, and I like the idea of spiritual, spirituality, a lot of my friends are not spiritual at all, you know, uh, especially in New York. A lot of my friends, when, whenever I talk to them about the idea of church, they're sort of like, what? Like, what? Like, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like the idea of spirituality. Um, and I am a spiritual person. I am a Christian. And I like being around people who share similar values. Mm-hmm. So I'm friendly with lots and lots of people, but I also like the idea, knowing that I'm connected with people who share the same views and values as I do. I enjoy Michael's observation about where he finds communities and the differences of each. His insight, we don't always gather, is worth a time of reflection Like, what's the difference between being in touch and gathering? Doing something and just being. What's the difference between a conversation and spiritual reflection? Fleeting opportunities to meet in the consistency of a place like St. Lydia's. Michael kept referencing the phrase, like-minded people. So I wanted to know what that meant to him. There's always going to be... Some kind of likeness that's necessary for that community to be. Is that really what you're saying? You know, I'm not necessarily saying that because I really believe that community, really and truly, you don't necessarily need to share uh, the same views and have necessarily the same values on everything. I think there are certain areas where you, you would like to have uh, a common ground in terms of values. But you don't necessarily need to share the same views and values on everything. It's it's just not the real world if you're going to ask people to, you know, identify with everything that you, you belong to or, or believe in. So, but it's still, there, there are certain principles and there are certain things that you want to share for it to actually be a community. Most people have a delusion about Christian community. They tend to think it is this ideal community where harmony, mutual love, and building up flow freely. The moment they discover this is not the case, they hate the community, and ultimately, the God who called it into being. As Michael speaks, I hear the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote in his book, Life Together. 
he who loves his dream of a community more than the community itself, becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal attentions may be ever so good and earnest and sacrificial. Let's continue to listen. Jump back to where we kind of back to that early conversation. We were talking about you're working with somebody in this community that you don't necessarily like. How do you handle something like that? Well, you know, as you said earlier on, we, we may not necessarily like everyone, but we have to realize that we have to get along and we have to know that we, we still can work together, even if we may have different viewpoints, if we may not necessarily like the person. Um, and also, you know, I say that, you know, that I don't, I didn't really, I don't really necessarily like the person, but it's like, these things are fleeting. So today, I may feel that way about the person, and then tomorrow it will change. And I, I, I sometimes I have to look deeper and think of, okay, so what happened? Why this person sort of like, well, why I'm not liking this person? Well, why this person pissed me off? And people have bad days, and sometimes I'm reacting and so forth like that. And it doesn't necessarily mean I don't like the person. Right. It's just it's, it's recognizing that maybe I find the person a little bit like unpleasant or a little bit abrasive. Or, but deep down, is, is that person, like maybe if we had another team-building exercise that I'd probably bond with this person, I'd get to know this person and like this person a lot more? It's quite possible. Like, as we talk about this, um, we make decisions, uh, like these quick uh, judgments and like, oh, I don't like this person. But it's, as soon as you get a chance, sometimes a lot of times, you know, you, you get to know the person, like really know the person, as opposed to those like very quick, rapid decisions we make and like, oh, I don't, yeah. You get to know the person. And as a result of that, you can actually bond and realize that there's a lot of common ground and really connect with that person. And yeah. sometimes you... You may spend a lot of time with them like, oh, I really, yes, it's, it's valid. I don't like that person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about the, the situation where um, I was really annoyed by someone recently. And yeah, I didn't make the, ne- the, the connections as to what that person may have had or experienced like, prior to you know, interacting with me. Um, I just went on their interaction with me and I was like that, that's unpleasant that's not that's not called for I don't really like that um, and I don't like this person but it, it's 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 hard as, as you you know as human beings to be able to always make those connections and try to figure out like because then we can forgive almost anything and, and everyone because do you are you following mm-hmm. so many things that influence the way people be, behave and the way you know, you know and we can go back and scratch and scratch and scratch. And all of a sudden, the person comes out like, oh, yeah, this person is perfectly fine. This person is, yeah, and it's, they're, they're only reacting this because, you know, their mother was abusive to them and their father was in there. And, then, and, so, <laughs> and so right now, the end product is standing in front of me and they're really unpleasant. And I've got to, like, go back and, and peel the layers to make them. And it's like, but we, we don't have, we can't go back and peel the layers and figure out, like, oh, they had a really bad day. You're just, we just deal with in the moment. You're standing in front of me, and you're really unpleasant, and I don't really like it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I used to teach summer staff. One of my guiding principles for working with children 
it is impossible to like every child. People who say they do are just lying. Don't pretend to like every child. They're perceptive and they'll understand you don't like them. There are children we won't like for a variety of reasons. It's just natural. It is, however, unethical and unacceptable to treat children we don't like unfairly. I told them, identify the child you don't like. Then when you interact with that child, ask yourself, if I like this child, would I treat them differently? If you do this, you're more likely to develop a mutually beneficial relationship. It's a lesson not bound to summer camp, and Michael picks up on it as well. How has this connection with St. Lydia's, has that, how has it influenced your professional life? I, I think the one way it has uh, affected my professional life, I, I, think it's, um, I think it's relating to others uh, and people with different viewpoints for me and just a compassionate understanding. I think this is probably the, the one way it has, has affected, uh, affected me. Uh, I think there's, there's, there's a point to, to me, there, there's something about me that I'm very like headstrong uh, in my viewpoints at times. And sometimes like, I, I, there, there were times where I, I would find myself not necessarily being the most tolerant or accepting of, of uh, a varying viewpoint. And I think just being there and being around uh, the, the members of my congregation is being very open. And, I, and I, I do see myself as very open a lot, but sometimes I just feel like I could be more open, affected how St. Ladies has affected my my professional life would be the fact that I'm probably a little bit more patient and more willing to to accept uh, viewpoints that may be different from from me, um, and seeing where people may um, you know, we're seeing our differences and how we could come together. Uh, I think that's probably essentially it. Yeah. Uh, but part of me feels like I was always like that. So, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe St. Lydia's does not make him more anything. Perhaps it just sustains and affirms the person he is and desires to be, at work and in play. There's great value in that alone. So, but you're, you're a lawyer. And, like, I've had a number of people I know have gone to law school, and it's a really competitive field. Yeah. How does that competitiveness influence a work environment is it competitive in 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 the office as well uh one of the things that i think about is there was an episode of of 30 rock i was watching recently and uh jack donaghy i don't know whether or not you've ever watched up where he's talking to ken the page and ken is trying to move up in in corporate america and he says to to ken no one's your friend you have to realize every time you have these like uh relationships with people you have to figure out, you're having the relationships with them, pretending to be friends, but you're really trying to figure out their weaknesses so that you could exploit it later, so that you can climb up the ladder. And I feel like in the practice of law, when you're in the office, there are a lot of people who you interact with, who I feel like they're just trying to step on your head to move up to the next spot. So <laughs> practice of law is not really that competitive. It's just in the office, everyone's trying to step on each other so they could, so they, they could be next in line for the promotion. Right. And it's trying to understand that uh, that this is the the nature of, of, of practicing law. You know, when, at the University of Wisconsin, one of the first things I learned in the fall was that 
we all had to be graded on a curve. This is the way law school is. You have to have certain a certain section of the class has to be it will will get A's, a certain section will get the D's and the F's, and everybody else is going to be in the middle. So everybody's fighting to do that. So even if when you're when you're with, with your friends, they're all you're you're competing with them. It immediately sets this up. It's like oh, I can't share this with 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 uh, with John over here. Oh, I can't share this with with Catherine over here because I need to get that A. I need to get this edge. You know because no, we can't all get A's. Some of us have to fail. So that's already built in and ingrained in law school. That yeah, it's competition from day one. Right. <laughs> the gospel according to Jack Donahue is something pastors should really read. It speaks to the great divide between pastors and their congregations. Often, the world we preach about is not visible or possible in the world of our congregational members' lives. When the elements of that cutthroat world enter a congregation, it becomes destructive. In, in faith is when you start talking about love and community and acceptance and patience and all that stuff. They'll come back and say, in my office life, I can't it's- have that. Yeah, exactly. You're right? gonna... <laughs> so, so it's like we, we, we swim in this pool of patience and acceptance and we want to be that, but we have this like kind of uh, this dichotomy or this, uh, this conflict going on. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I can think of two things. So I, I, I keep going back to that episode because Ken is very naive. He's from the South. And he's like, everybody's wonderful. Everybody's great. But, you know, we're friends. And, and Jack is like, no, you're not. You don't understand, Ken. If you want to get ahead in this world, you realize that person is not your friend. They're there, and you need to figure out a way to, like, to, you know, to, 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 to elevate yourself above him. And so you've got to figure out a way to undermine him because he's doing the exact same thing to you. And immediately, and so this is corporate America. And so this idea of, like, oh, we're all great. And uh, if you really embrace that viewpoint uh, in a professional setting and in a, in a competitive setting like that, you're, you're going to sort of like, you're going to set yourself up for failure to some degree. And this is what Jack was saying, which is, which is right. Right. <laughs> the gospel according to Jack. I already embrace that viewpoint, but I understand where he's coming from. Right. Because a lot of times in these settings, it's so competitive that people are being deceitful. People are uh, cheating a little bit. People are doing these things, doing whatever they can to, to get ahead. So how, how, do you, how do you wrestle with these two things? I mean, how do you, how do you navigate that? This, this kind of draw to community, acceptance, patience, but this aggressiveness that you really have to have, right? Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever had that real strong aggressiveness. Uh, I, I, I believe in the genuineness of people. I like to think that I can see through people. And I don't go around thinking that my friends or the people who I'm interacting with are trying to exploit certain aspects uh, of me. Uh, I, think, I think it's necessary to just to be like, you know, I don't know. Just you, you can't have that viewpoint. Um, they are good people and it's realizing that they are good people and they are honest people and eventually in life what's due to you you will you will get 
and you don't necessarily have to because there's so many times in life where I feel like I've benefited just simply because of my relationships. Wait, and we do benefit because of our relationships. We don't necessarily always have to be competitive and step on each other's um, and step on each other's t- to get ahead. It's just it's the wrong mentality, okay. and I think it's it's one of those things in corporate America that I think is just really wrong. Unfortunately, many people sort of like uh, embrace that viewpoint. Right. Yeah. Hey. You know, yeah. Go ahead. What are you I, was gonna, uh, I was just look, I looked in, into uh, Vanity Fair. Vanity, yeah, Vanity Fair magazine. You recently had uh, an interview with Al Franken, uh, your senator. Yeah. And they asked him about one of the most overrated virtues, and he said, "Piety, especially extreme piety." That nonsense will only like hold you back. <laughs> so, so that 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 echoes uh, what people say in in corporate America. Right. If you have like really pious view, like oh everyone's good and then um, and it's all feel good. It's like in corporate America and in these competitive settings, you're you, yeah, it's 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 hard. It's tough. The New York I knew as a younger man was tough. New Yorkers used to take pride in their toughness and their hard edge. It's a little strange coming back and experience this softer, calmer, and safer environment. So I asked Michael if there was anything about the 80s he missed. I, I, I definitely don't miss that edginess. Uh, of, you know, I don't at all. Yeah. I, I like York is now, and to me, it could even be nicer. You know, right now I live on Columbia Street, uh, Union, close to what what was what is people would say is the borderline of Red Hook, and Red Hook has been like notorious for being like years ago, slightly a lot of crime and so forth. But my my where I live is a very very nice. Crime is very low. It's a very gentrified area. Um, and sometimes at night, it would be around 8, 9 o'clock, my windows are open, and I could hear kids playing in the street. And I, I you know, just playing on sidewalks, running around. And to me, that's just so strange to hear, like, young little kids playing. Right. It, wow, this is crazy. This is New York. This right. is... Right. And some uh, family has decided that it's okay for their uh, six- and seven-year-old to, like, run around and play on the sidewalk. And and so there's that there's that feeling of uh, safety in New York. Uh, so yeah, I mean it's 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 great. It's it's wonderful. Um, I just wish everyone could experience it, right. and not just the affluent, but everyone could sort of experience that and be in a world where they feel safe and they're secure and have all the the, the blessings that um, they can get. Right. Right. I think that is a it's a different story. What's interesting about Michael is he doesn't feel robbed of the freedom to play outside when he was a child. Yet he finds absolute joy there are children who get that freedom. That, in and of itself, says volumes about who he is. The group I took to New York were on a pilgrimage. A pilgrimage is different than a mission trip. We were not going to serve as much as to learn about ourselves and to learn about ourselves in relationship to God and each other. We used Eugene Peterson's book, 
a long obedience in the same direction as a spiritual grounding for our pilgrimage. In the book, Peterson reflects upon the Songs of Ascent, Psalms 121 through 134. These were songs Jewish pilgrims sang as they climbed the long road to Jerusalem, a journey they took with friends and strangers. Michael's words reflect the thoughts of Psalm 133. How very good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. The Bible knows nothing about solitary Christianity. As though a person of faith could be locked behind a door for safekeeping away from the threats of the world. A faith which grows in isolation from other people will not grow at all or become abundant. Is why worship is so important. Worship reminds us we are called by God to be in the presence of the lovely and unlovely people whom God loves and has commanded us to love. A Christian community calls the individual out of isolation and fear into the presence of other wounded people. It is here we come to learn to take people seriously. We learn to trust, to depend on others, to be compassionate and rejoice. When you discover this, like Michael has, you will understand why the psalmist sings how very good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. Eugene Peterson points out oil is a sign of God's presence, a symbol of the Spirit of God. An anointing oil is something reserved for priests. The image the psalmist paints is of the Spirit of God flowing down upon Aaron's head and into his beard. It's a warm, intimate experience, standing in contrast to the hard, competitive jostling of work. Once anointed, though, we become priests to each other. For people need a brother or sister to speak the word of God in their ears, like a table fellowship at a dinner church. It does not make you more, but sustains and renews the hungry, hope-starved soul with life. How very good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in community, for that's where God commands the blessing and ordains eternal life. That's our show. I want to thank you for listening and thank Michael for sharing. Maybe if you find yourself in Brooklyn, you can stop by and see him at the dinner church. Or just go to worship in a loving community. You know, they have a waffle option, and there's nothing more spiritual than a waffle option. I look forward to you joining me again. Until then, remember there's more joy in serving than being served, more life and love than hate, and patience is key to understanding. If you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. Go to the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. That's OrdinaryVoices.org to find other shows and to sign up for the daily devotions. This is a listener-supported show, so if you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the Donate button on the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. On behalf of all Ordinary Voices, thanks for listening.